Boys and girls, I wonder if you are a little bit like me when I was a kid. My mom and dad would sometimes come in late at night and they would find me reading. And they would say, okay, Eric, it's time for you to go ahead and put away the book. You need to turn out your light. It's past your bedtime. And I would say, okay, until they left. And then I would keep reading. Because whatever I was reading, I was totally engrossed in. My family can testify to this day that when I watch a movie, I'm probably the most embarrassing person in the movie theater to sit next to because I'm constantly screaming out and talking, oh no, what's happening? Well, I would be the same way with my books. The action and the plot and the characters would just keep me going until I finally couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. Of course, now as middle-aged adult, I can barely keep my eyes open to read a book, much less get to an exciting point. Well, last Sunday, we had to put the book down. We were forced to stop the story at Ruth chapter 3. And there we had the hard news that this romance between Ruth and Boaz, where we thought they were going to ride off into the sunset happily ever after, there's somebody else. There's the potential of another Redeemer who might sweep in and interrupt the plan. There's a relative who's closer than Boaz, who has to be given the first right of refusal to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And you remember last week that under the cover of darkness, Boaz sent Ruth back to Naomi. And Naomi, kind of with that wry look in her eye, told, uh, told Ruth, you know, that guy isn't going to rest until this matter is settled. Well, chapter 4, verse 1, it's the morning. The morning after that midnight conversation between Boaz and Ruth. And sure enough, Boaz has rushed to the city gate. Why to the city gate? When we went to Israel a few years ago, we had the opportunity to go to the ancient city of Dan. Dan is in the northern part of Israel, and as we walked up to that ancient city, you could see the gate into the city, and it opened up onto a plaza. And the reason that that was the place that people gathered was because there really wasn't room within the city itself. There was no such thing as a city hall or a court of justice or anything like that. The elders of the city and the judges of the city that would gather there in that plaza outside the city gate where people would bring their problems to them or where business would be transacted. Well, that's where Boaz has gone and he asked 10 elders to come and sit down. And, you know, sure enough, here comes the Redeemer. Another coincidence in this book filled with coincidences, which are, of course, just an illustration to you and me of how God is actively at work guiding and directing the people of this story. Boaz asked the Redeemer to sit down. He asked the 10 elders to sit down and he has a business, uh, a business proposal to give to this other redeemer. The proposal itself is quite attractive. Verse 3, he tells this other man that Naomi, who was married to their relative Elimelech, she has a piece of land that she needs to sell. 
Now, ordinarily, if a woman like that, if her husband died, then other men in the family, particularly the brothers of the man who died, would step in to provide for that woman. They would purchase that land. They would hold it in trust until her children grew up and were old enough to control the land themselves, to take care of the land. But of course, Naomi doesn't have any children. Her two sons died, and they don't have, she doesn't have any grandchildren. And so Boaz asks this man that we don't know his name, do you want to purchase this land? Well, the relative, he sees a win-win business deal. He says, okay, number one, I can look like the good guy for providing for Naomi, but it's really not going to cost me a lot because Naomi doesn't have any heirs. So instead of holding this land, spending some money and holding this land in reserve for Naomi's heirs, after Naomi dies, I get to have this land. And so the relative quickly agrees to buy it. And I want you to imagine that you're listening to someone tell this story, sitting around a campfire in the Israelite desert, and everyone goes, no, that can't happen. He's not supposed to be the redeemer. Well, Boaz is a little bit like Detective Columbo. You guys remember Detective Columbo? I'm probably the youngest person in here that remembers Detective Columbo. Boaz turns, he says, oh, just, just, just one more thing, one more question. In verse 5, he says, you know, along with this land comes a responsibility for Ruth, the Moabite widow. You have to marry her, and you have to have children with her in the name of her dead husband, Malon. So the land isn't something that you get to keep forever and ever. It doesn't go into your real estate portfolio adding to your net worth. Actually, you're going to hold it in reserve. You're going to be a steward of that land until your child with Ruth is old enough to take control of it. Well, suddenly this win-win business deal is fading fast. The guy won't be able to keep the land. The land will pass on to Ruth's child, and he reasons that even his own inheritance might be in jeopardy. Instead of a financial windfall, taking the land, taking care of Naomi and Ruth, well, that could be a financial drain on this relative. So you can almost imagine him saying, oh, darn it. I'm so sorry, but I'm not actually going to be able to purchase that land. I, I'll have to pass. Why don't you take care of it? Verse 6, he gives way to Boaz. And suddenly, the whole tenor of the book shifts. All of the setbacks, all of the challenges, all of the twists and turns of this story quickly give way to Boaz marrying Ruth and Boaz and Ruth having a child, Obed. But then, interestingly, Boaz and Ruth fade from the scene. 
And the only main character that is left at the end of this story is Naomi. Although the book is named after Ruth, this is really Naomi's story. She's the one that we focus on at the end because it was her problem at the beginning that needed to be solved. I think this is why in verse 14, the women of Bethlehem call Obed, the baby that is born to Boaz and Ruth, they call Obed Naomi's redeemer. Look again with me. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your, of your old age. And all along through this, we're like, yeah, Boaz, go for it, buddy. But then it keeps going. For your daughter-in-law who loves you has more than seven sons has given birth to him. And we've got to stop and shake our heads and go, wait a minute. This entire story is about Boaz becoming Ruth's redeemer, Naomi's redeemer. Why is Obed called the redeemer? Naomi is the last character left standing at the end of this story, and that means we have to go back to the beginning of the story to understand. This whole story begins with Naomi's emptiness. Without a husband, without her two sons, without a home. But now in this last scene, we see Naomi holding this grandson. But friends, I also want you to remember that Naomi, she still doesn't have a husband. The two sons that came from her womb, they are still dead and buried in Moab. Obed isn't meant to be a replacement for her grief and loss. In fact, I think it's reasonable that Naomi would have grieved her losses until the day that she died. But in that little baby that she laid on her lap, she had a pledge of God's faithfulness to her. Obed is God's pledge to Naomi that loss and hardship, sadness and sorrow won't be the final word in her life. Instead, God would work in her darkness. God would work through her pain to redeem and restore not just Naomi, not just Ruth, but the entire nation of Israel. That's why we have this genealogy at the end of chapter 4. Because this is a story that takes us to David. This is a story that helps us see how God was at work to bring his king, the man after his own heart, to the throne of Israel. I'm an odd guy when it comes to stories like this. I, I sometimes ask questions that are impolite. And one question that I've been struggling with this week is, why did God decide to do it this way? 
Why did Naomi have to experience such sorrow and suffering? This could have just as easily been a redemption story that was centered on Elimelech, a man who doubted God's provision, a man who probably sinned by taking his family, not just out of the promised land, but into the land of his enemies. But he could have been convicted of his sin there. And then he could have brought his boys and their wives back to Israel and then he could have been in the, one of the ancestors of King David. He could have been one of the ancestors of Jesus. Couldn't Naomi have avoided the suffering and the hardship and still got the same results? Then I think about people in our own congregation. I think about some of the lives and the hardship and the sorrow and the suffering that you have to go through. And I think, well, that's just not the way that life works, is it? We don't get to skip the hardship. We don't get to skip the suffering. This entire story is filled with hardship and suffering. Now, some of it is brought on by the characters themselves, by their sinful choices. I think Elimelech sinned by taking Naomi and his two boys out of the promised land. Maybe some of you can look at your life right now and say, yeah, I can see how things in my life, some of the suffering, some of the hardship that I'm experiencing, it can be traced directly back to my sinful choices. But sometimes we think, well, I just made a mistake. Sometimes I, I just didn't know what I was doing, you know, but... Those boneheaded decisions are probably outweighed by your willful violations against God's law. And that's why many of us suffer. But some of the suffering and some of the hardship in this story seems out of control, out of the control of the characters here. Life suddenly seems random. Life suddenly seems meaningless. And Maybe you feel that way too. You sometimes feel like you're caught up in a, in a situation that you can't understand. You don't know how you got there. Try as I might, there isn't a verse in Ruth that tells us why God did what he did. And that's the question that we often ask. Why? Why this path? Why not some other way? Instead, the story brings us from hardship and suffering, from famine and death, to redemption and restoration. And friends, there's a lesson for us here. You may not be able to see or even to understand what God is doing in your life. And in fact, I think it's often foolish to try to go back in your life and to interpret providence or to second-guess the decisions that we think brought us to our current state. Instead, like the characters in this story, we're called to go forward. To go forward in faith. Now, that's not blind faith like our culture talks about. 
You know, people make fun of Christians. Well, you just suspend your rationality and believe anything without the evidence. No, that's not what we think at all. Actually, faith is based on real evidence and real knowledge. I know who this God is. And because He has proven Himself, and because there are witnesses to this God's work in the world and in my life, if I am faced with something that I don't understand, I am still willing to walk forward in faith. I will trust Him, even if I don't like Him. I will follow Him, even if I don't understand Him. Friends, the obstacles in our lives, the obstacles that we think thwart God's ability to do good in our lives, the obstacles that we think put a stop to God's plan A for us, they are not just inconsequential to God. They are actually the means that God uses to bring about our redemption. I think that's one of the reasons for the blessing of the people back in verse 12 when they recall the story of Perez. Some of you remember that Perez was born of Tamar. You remember the story of Tamar and her father-in-law Judah, maybe from our sermon series in Genesis a couple years ago, or your own Bible reading. Tamar was another foreigner in the lineage of David, a Canaanite. But like Ruth, she was also a widow. And her husband died before she gave birth to a child. And when it looked like she would never give birth to a child, Like she would never have the security and the rest that a child in that society could provide for her. She tricked her father-in-law into a relationship so that she could get pregnant and she bore Perez. So according to the law, Perez was the son of her husband who died, Ur, as well as the son of her father-in-law, Judah. And so in some ways, what happens between Ruth and Boaz, it's the second most famous leveret marriage, you might remember that term from a couple Sundays ago, where a family binds together to provide an heir for someone who has died. It's the second most famous example. But I think there's more to their recalling this example than just saying, oh, it's another example of leveret marriage. It's an example of God working in and through sin and suffering to have his way, to achieve his will, to accomplish his work, no matter what things we throw up in front of God. Friends, God is at work in your darkest moments and in your most excruciating grief so that Jesus may be fully and finally your Savior. Obed will be Naomi's Redeemer. But not even Obed or Obed's grandson David would bring ultimate redemption, ultimate restoration, ultimate nourishment to God's people, Israel. And sadly, not even many of David's descendants 
would act with the kind of faithfulness that Ruth exhibited? Or would live with the kind of obedience that Boaz demonstrated? I I want you to remember, we know from this genealogy here at the end of Ruth that even though this story is set during the time of the judges, when there was no king, it's written and being read at least at the time of David and probably after David. The kings who followed David proved themselves to be unfaithful Israelites who rejected their own people, who rejected God. Just like the unnamed relative here in chapter 4, they weren't willing to sacrifice their own interests for the interests of the people. So put yourselves in the shoes of those who are listening to this who probably heard stories about how good and godly King David was, but now are living in a time that's almost as bad as the judges. Can you imagine the longing in their hearts? The longing for a redeemer? The longing for a restorer? The longing for a nourisher? It would have been intense. How long, O Lord, until you are faithful to your people again? Someone greater than Obed had to come. Someone greater than David had to lead God's people. Like Naomi, like Ruth, and like Israel, you and I, we also need the one who redeems, who restores, and who nourishes. Many of the names here at the end of Ruth can be found also at the beginning of the book of Matthew, as we trace Jesus' ancestry back through David to Boaz and to Ruth. This story of Ruth, it doesn't just point to David, it points to David's greater son, Jesus. And friends, in many ways, if you belong to Jesus today, if you've bowed the knee, if you've confessed that he is Savior, then you have already begun to enjoy his rule and reign. Already you know the just verdict of his salvation has has been pronounced over you. But even you and I, we long for the day when we will enjoy the fullness of his reign. When we will see the consummation of his kingdom. And because we still wait for that, that means that sometimes we are susceptible to false redeemers. People like the unnamed relative who promises us redemption and yet only looking for their own best interests. If you confess Christ today, lean on your true redeemer. He gains nothing from you but your sin. And yet he gives himself to us. And he receives us as his own. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Friend, I want you to look and see how God welcomes people who are strangers to him. Ruth didn't know Naomi's God at the beginning of this story. She had her own set of gods. She didn't have any right to become part of this important history of Israel. But God wrote 
this stranger into his story of redemption. And God can write you into his story of salvation. A son has been born to Naomi, the women cry out. Another son from Obed's family was born to Mary. And friends, he commands our attention. For the baby who was born in Bethlehem, who nursed at Mary's breast, who was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem, buried and rose again, and who now rules and reigns from the throne of David forever, he is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal King and the everlasting God. Believe on Him. Rest in Him. And He will abide with you forever. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in this simple story. So much of our own lives. So much of our own fears and hopes. So much of the promises that we hope are true, and yet we honestly struggle to believe. So grant us the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us to see your faithfulness down through history. And then, Father, may we walk forward courageously, even if the light is dim, even if the voices are loud that try to turn us away. May we follow what we know because you have revealed it to us in your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.